Welcome to BSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action. I'm Randall Hayes. So this week we wrap up our conversation with my old housemate Corbin Jones by combining evolutionary biology with neuroscience. This is my actual training, so you'll notice my questions becoming a little more intelligent than usual. I'll also be interrupting occasionally to fill in bits of information, which I don't normally do, but can't resist in this particular case. Let me know if that works for you. But first, a bit more on the lesion method, which we'll be talking about and around quite a lot during the interview. I got interested in how the brain works partly by reading the works of the neurologist Oliver Sacks. I don't mean his most famous work, Awakenings, which got made into a Robin Williams, Robert De Niro movie. My favorite is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which is a series of short case histories about people who had specific brain lesions and the consequences of those lesions. The classic game in neurology is match the symptom to the location. If you've ever watched House doing differential diagnosis, you have some idea of how to play this game. And if you've ever been to a neurology grand rounds, you can see that is to some extent what the doctors are doing, playing a game. It's fun for them. Not that they have no empathy for their patients, because they do, but up until very recently, we didn't have the technology to do much about brain and spinal cord injuries. And the most they could do for their patients was to help them understand what had happened to them and how to cope, how to rearrange their lives to compensate for the things that they had lost. Oliver Sacks displays that empathy in his case studies as he tries to understand how the world appears to someone whose brain is different. In other words, what happens to your life when you can't automatically recognize hundreds of different faces the way the rest of us normally and effortlessly do. So where's the fly work these days? I mean, are you still working on the Mirinda stuff? Yep. I mean, that's got much more neuroscience. How, how do you do neuro in a fly? How many, how many neurons does their brain even have? Like 10,000? No, no, no. Uh, close to 100,000, actually. How do you do neuroscience in a fly? Um, it's actually remarkably easy. You can do all sorts of things. You can do tissue or neuron-specific ablations. So, um, lasers? No, you actually use a genetic tool. So, as you develop, some some cells are important during one point in development are not needed later on, and so you actually intentionally kill off those cells. That's called apoptosis. Cellular suicide. Yes, cellular suicide. Right, and one of the things some very clever people in Drosophila have engineered is genetic tools where you take that suicide gene and you do some genetic engineering and you basically engineer an on and off switch. And that on and off switch combined with some other tools that allow you to turn it on and off in specific tissues and specific tissue types allow you to basically say, okay, I'm going to kill off only the cells that are in your pinky and it will kill off only the cells that are in your pinky. So you then end up with a fruit fly that doesn't have a pinky, for instance. Not that fruit flies have pinkies. 
So this is that's an extension of a of the classic neuroscience lesion experiment. That's right. Like where you you they started in the you know nineteen hundreds with bullet wounds. It's shot through the head in this yeah. particular spot. So what is the brain without that particular thing? Yep. Do. Gonna have to break in here because this is an important point. Your brain is a nonlinear, dynamical, complex system full of feedback loops. Most of us science types have been trained to think of the world as a static linear system. 2 plus 2 equals 4. All you need to know are what the parts are and how they are arranged, and you're done. You can predict that system's behavior. Removing one piece from that system removes that function but it doesn't change the other pieces. So that function is what that piece did. Remove a car's brakes and the car can't stop suddenly. It also won't flash those red lights on the back. Remove the brake lights and the car will still stop. The brakes will not adjust themselves to decelerate gradually because other drivers can't see the red lights. Reductionist science was designed to work on these kinds of linear systems, and it works beautifully in those cases. But with nonlinear systems, it becomes more complicated. Removing a piece from the brain doesn't just remove that one piece. Everything that piece was connected to will now adjust itself, successfully or not successfully. That's what I mean when I say what the rest of the brain does without that piece. And so you just extended that to the genetic level. Not you, but yeah, whoever it was who invented this. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly what's happened. And and we not just to the genetic level, but, but to the single cell level. So if we have the appropriate targeting agent, the appropriate way to sort of wire on off switch for that, that cell suicide gene, we can turn out kill specific cells, if only a few. Fruit flies eat fruit, right? That's what you'd first assume. If I told you fruit fly, you think there's something eating fruit. It's not exactly true. Fruit flies like to eat rotting fruit, generally. And as you know by the ones that are buzzing around in your kitchen, they'll eat almost any rotting fruit. And they like things that smell like rotting fruit, like wine. Wine is basically rotten grapes. Um, some fruit flies, a small subset, have decided not to eat any rotten fruit, but sort of focus on only one or a few rotten fruits. And these guys are, are, are what we call specialists. Specialists are very important because they typically change their whole lifestyle to just do one thing. The specialists most people are probably most familiar with are actually mosquitoes. There are human specialist mosquitoes, mosquitoes that, that have evolved to target humans in particular. And they do little differences than your wild mosquito. Your wild mosquito, you know, sees a warm-blooded animal, zeroes in on it, using largely the smell of that animal and CO2 that it's exhaling, and will just bite it anywhere it can land. A human-adapted one will actually target your ankles. I've noticed that. <laughs> and I guess the skin is thinner there? No. 
Now that I know, it's very simple. If you were a human-specific, if you were a mosquito, imagine you had ten mosquitoes. Five will bite anywhere they want to go. Five only bite the ankles. The ones that will bite anywhere they want to go may try and bite your face. You are much more likely to see, hear, and spot a mosquito that's landing on your face than one that is targeting your ankles. How do they know where your ankles are? Ah, what's the chemical signal of my ankle? Well, most people's feet smell a little funky. And it turns out that that funkiness is caused by a combination of, of the natural oils you produce down there, the microorganisms that basically eat those oils as they rot. And, and as you know, you know, as oils sort of go bad, they, they get this sort of rancid smell. Mm -hmm. They're particular about fatty acids that get released, that are volatile, that, that are small enough molecules that they, they penetrate the air, thus feed stink. And the mosquitoes actually cue in on those chemicals. So that's like those volatile, like octanoic acid and those volatile fatty acids from the marinda fruit. They are the exact same volatile fatty acids as in the marinda fruit. Humans make octanoic acid? Oh yeah, we make tons of it. It's a normal process of separate metabolism. Mm -hmm. Yes. Huh. Tons of it. Yeah. Uh, a liver helps us break it down. It's normally sort of turned over in the cell. Large amounts to humans are obviously toxic, but we're talking about a couple pounds. Right, so the human, the human liver is one of the greatest inventions ever. Absolutely. And flies don't have one. Ah, they don't have the same sort of thing. They do have a, an equivalent, but it's not the same. And it, it doesn't handle large amounts of fatty acids the same as our cells. And think about that, though, for a minute, though, right? Most of the time, a fruit fly is not eating fat-rich foods, right? Humans tend to eat many more fat-rich foods. Most, most animals do. Particularly, we think about mammals that are feeding on breast milk early in development as a fat-rich food. So they, there's constant selection for being able to handle fat-rich foods. Insects, you know, they try and build their own fat, but they're not necessarily consuming fat-rich foods. So yes, the fruit flies that we look at cue in off one particular type of fruit. So we work with one of these specialists that's adapted to only one particular type of food. And it happens to be a fruit that contains high amounts of some of these chemicals that are found on your feet. And one of the questions we've been asking is what happens to the fruit fly's ability to smell those compounds and respond to those compounds? during the sort of emergence and the evolution of this odor-seeking, this, this food, novel food-seeking behavior. Right, and so the, if I remember right, the deal was that most flies actively avoid the marinda fruit because it's toxic. That's right. And they can and, smell it. And, and they, they can like smell the it smell. and they don't like the smell. And then this particular species of flies flipped that yep. and instead would move towards the toxin. Right. And it evolved the ability to detoxify the toxin at a very, very effective rate. And clearly this strong preference for things that smell like the toxin and related compounds. So so have you got how far have you gotten? Because that was the switch that you were working on years and years ago was how do you flip? And it sounds it sounds easy in the terms of if you're used to thinking of computer logic, mm -hmm. it sounds easy to flip 
from avoid to approach. Yeah. It's... Did well, that turn out to be an easy problem? Uh, it's never an easy problem, right? <laughs> so so, so there, there, there are two aspects to it. It's very easy to take something from either like it or avoid it to I don't care about it. Right. So if you don't like eggs because you don't like the smell of eggs, right? If I take off your nose, if I cut off, if I remove your nose, your ability to perceive the eggs, I just put them down in front of you. You'll eat them, right? You, you're like, all right, I don't smell eggs. They're okay. I can eat that. So the biggest shift in sort of our way of thinking about it was going from you must love it or hate it to you love it, don't care about it, hate it. So and there's three states there's and two really, separate systems. There's a, a love it system and a hate it system. That's what the current work is suggesting. So what's happened from very early on is we've entered the genomics era. So now we're able to sequence the entire genome of this specialist fruit fly. And when we did that, this was a large collaborative project, um, we discovered that it was missing. It had broken versions of many of the, the genes important for smell and taste. So it was like that example I used of, 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 of the scrambled eggs, where the fruit flies lost the ability to smell a lot of stuff. And that's probably kind of like humans. Humans have tons of broken that's absolutely smell receptor genes, right? Yep, smell and taste, yep. And so I've been playing around with this idea that said, you know, because the Neanderthals were specialist meat eaters. As well, far as that's a meat. hypothesis, yeah. Uh, right, so the, the isotope stuff that says they didn't eat a lot of plant food. In order to not be eating plants, they probably had to have those super taster kind of mechanisms, like my wife who doesn't eat anything bitter. Yeah. So it's a general but counterintuitive point that breaking things is sometimes adaptive. It allows modern humans to be omnivores, to eat and even enjoy bitter-tasting plant products like the coffee I'm sucking down right now. Ah. We're dietary generalists, which allows us to live in places where specialists like koalas or panda bears or Corbin's fruit flies can't live. You could hear Corbin scoffing a bit, and he's right that the jury is still out. But there is some evidence that the Neanderthals were specialist carnivores. I'll link to some of it on the website. Now, if that were true, then there should be further evidence in their genome. The Neanderthal genome should maybe have working versions of taste and smell receptors that would cause them to avoid plants. You'd expect differences in liver function, too, although that might, not, that might be really hard to spot genomically because it would be another case of the integrated function of a whole system rather than just a few broken genes. Even the broken gene stuff is more complicated than it first seems, as Professor Jones will now explain. Hold on one second. Let's talk about super tasters. Super tasters is a misnomer. 
The uh, funny thing is about super tasters is most people think about super tasters in the context of the herb cilantro, right? People who are super tasters eat cilantro and they actually think it tastes like soap or something kind of like that. And so the original thought was... Which would be why Jennifer hates cilantro. Exactly. With a passion. Exactly. What was always assumed, before we understand the genetics underlying it, was that these are people who are able to taste some aspect of cilantro the cilantro lovers couldn't. Turns out the opposite is true. Cilantro, um, well, first of all, flavor is often a combination of different chemical compounds in a plant or in whatever you're eating. Some are fairly simple, some are fairly complex. In the case of cilantro, it's relatively simple. There are sort of two major chemical compounds that provide most of the flavor. Super tasters for cilantro actually have lost the ability. They have a broken gene for one of those flavor compounds. And like many things, you know, the individual smells smell like one thing, but when you combine them together, they smell like something very different. That's very much the case with cilantro. So the super tasters, instead of getting the combined experience of both of these, 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 these flavors, only get one of them. And that in and of itself is not good. The normal taster of cilantro tastes that flavor that bothers the cilantro haters. But because it's sort of masked and combined with the other one, those soapy notes just accentuate the other sort of herby, fresh notes that, that come through with cilantro. In other words, smells are not additive. 2 plus 2 does not, in this particular case, equal 4. Two wrongs can make a right. Soapy plus fresh equals delicious. This is a classic example of nonlinearity. So it's a funny thing. Some super tasters are actually really bad tasters or poor tasters. And that's the deal with the fruit flies are so thin. They have lost a lot of these tasting genes and a lot of these smelling genes, these pseudogenes like humans have. And uh, so this all comes back to those turning and killing genes in a very, killing specific nerves and specific cells, things. What we do is we take one of the species that normally avoids the uh, uh, stinky fruit and we selectively kill different types of odor and taste genes so that we can see what effect that has on the behavior. We watch whether or not they start to move into not caring about it or potentially even actually enjoying it more. And so that's the level that we're at right now. We're trying to dissect using these sort of genetic ablations the components of the, the tasting and smelling system of these flies that are important for choosing to like the stinky fruit or hate the stinky fruit. Not to make things even more complicated, but there is another way to remove a function. You don't have to break things. You can add new functions that suppress the old functions. So yeah, humans have some broken smell receptors, but we still have a lot of others that do work. And there may be brain mechanisms that just suppress our conscious appreciation of them. One of Oliver Sacks' case studies, maybe my favorite one, called The Dog Beneath the Skin, 
describes how some recreational drug use disinhibited his smell system and made him aware of things that he normally ignored as part of being a polite human, such as whether the woman he was talking to was currently menstruating. Another example of how losing a function can actually be adaptive, because I have to imagine that would be kind of distracting. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Tune back in. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, search for VSI or Variation Selection Inheritance, or you can sign up at our website, which is Variation Selection Inheritance, all one word, dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.